Hi, I'm Rob Jepson, and my mission is to help sales leaders everywhere create record-setting growth in the companies they lead. I'm here to share the secrets of the world's most successful sales leaders. I don't care how big the company or how big the team, we showcase sales leaders that are beating their markets, winning at crazy rates, and doing it predictably and sustainably. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Exvoyant, the one-on-one platform that's transforming how market-leading sales organizations use Salesforce around the world. Move past the call reports, pipeline reports, and forecasts, and stop using Salesforce just as a system of record. Let the Exvoyant team show you how to use Salesforce as a system of impact, improvement, and performance by creating one-on-ones that ignite and inspire. If you don't have a plan on how you can help every single rep on your team improve by at least 10%, Exvoyant can help you grow faster than you ever thought possible. Now, get ready for some serious insights from sales leaders that are making it happen. And remember, don't worry, we got you. Hello and welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast, where high-growth sales leaders share high-growth practices and tactics. Today, we're joined by Michael Barton. Vice President and General Manager of the Commercial Division of Avery Denison's Apparel Business. Michael's team is driving growth in 19 countries around the world and has outperformed the market for seven consecutive quarters. We are excited to have this global sales leader join us today and share some of his success blueprint. Michael, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Robin. I'm glad to be here this morning. This is going to be fun. I, uh, I, I've, I've learned a lot about your company, uh, Avery Dennison is uh, not just uh, a leader in, in the markets that, that uh, you run. It's, it's a global recognized leader, and it, it's an amazing company doing cool things. For our listeners, Michael, could you just take a couple of minutes and share a little bit about Avery Dennison and the, and the division that you re- run in 19 countries around the world, and, and maybe even a little bit about your story of, of how you got to be where you are with them? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, yeah, so Avery Dennison is, is a, is a pretty large company, six billion dollars in revenue. And of course we operate in 50 countries around the world in total. Um, and we make a, a lot of different products and things, uh, to the market, but we're, we're basically organized into three main divisions. And the commonality between all the divisions is our genesis, um, in adhesive technology from where the business evolved about, from about 75 years ago in a downtown Los Angeles. And, and that's kind of the common link as the businesses have evolved and the companies um, made acquisitions and invested over the years. Um, the division I'm working in is the uh, RBIS division. And that division, we are really focused on the retail and apparel market. And what we do is we bring um, branding solutions um, and identification products to the retail industry. And so we work with um, the global leaders in that space. So if it could be a Levi's or a Nike or an Adidas or H&M or a Walmart, um, the products you see in their stores, uh, we try to help that brand and identify both the brand image, but also the pricing and, and the compliance marking on those products. So it's, it's a pretty diverse product portfolio we sell in RBIS, um, but it's all about uh, making the consumer have a great experience buying products in, in, in the retail environment. Um, so it's pretty exciting for both apparel and footwear. Um, I've been in the company 23 years, and I think one wow. of the great things about Avery, yeah, a long time. Um, it's a great place to work. Um, it's a it's a culture of entrepreneurialism um, from the founder Stan Avery from like I said 75 years ago. But it's also a culture of family. A lot of times you think you're working at a private company, small company, uh, because of the way we operate. So 
I've come up from the grassroots, um, you know, back when there was still apparel and footwear manufacturing in the United States and, and dealing with factories and manufacturing to now really focused on the global uh, retail business and how that's evolved. It's been, it's been a pretty exciting ride. So that, uh, that's a great introduction and Avery Dennison is seen in a lot of areas. And so what you're saying is with some of the things you're doing in the apparel business, there's lots of times people may have even seen, uh, some of your work and not even known it was yours from what you just described, huh? No, it's every day. Uh, cause that one of the great things when people ask, you know, what is, what do you do? It's really hard to explain it. I usually break it down and say, if you buy own a pair of Levi's jeans and you see the little red Levi's tab in the back pocket, that's what we do. Um, or if you see the leather patch that has the Levi's logo on your waistband, your jean, that's what we do. You know, if you're buying a Nike and you see the swoosh on the outside, that's our swoosh. If you see the price ticket, um, you know, that's our, that's our price ticket. Or if your wife tore the care label out of your, your Lululemon pants because it was too scratchy, that was our <laughs> scratchy care label. So that's what that's we are in, in the, in the retail and brand division. So I predict that you're going to get a bunch of, uh, LinkedIn and emails coming on. People saying, I got that scratchy label. What do I do about it? So send all inquiries to Michael Barton at, right? Um, well, I would say to tell the brands and retailers to spend more money on software materials. <laughs> I love it. Um, Michael, this is, this is great. Thank you again for, for introducing it that way. So clearly you have been running an organization that does things that every single one of our listeners can relate to because they see your products that you, uh, you help make recognizable and usable every single day, which is why I was so interested. I had the opportunity to uh, be in a meeting where I watched you address your team. And you had global leaders from all around the world in a room. And I and I was watching how you were working with your leaders. And you said something that really spoke to me. You talked to, to your team about, you know, the job as the leader isn't just to do what the market gives. The job as the leader is to make sure that we take what the market gives and then some. And for the people who follow our show, that's the whole premise of our of our our show is we feature sales leaders that take what the market gives and then a little more. You're doing that um, globally, you know, 19, 20 countries around the world in, in every continent with the world's biggest brands. Talk to me a little bit about how you've built that culture. Cause when I watched you say that to your team, heads were nodding. It wasn't like swallowing hard saying, how are we going to do that? That's the culture that you've built. How do you build a culture where your team says, yep, we are here to take what the market gives. And then my favorite, my favorite three words and then some, how yeah. do you do that? Well, I think if you look back where we've come from, you know, the retail apparel business is a very lumpy business. Not that that's unique that, you know, when, when, when the volumes are rolling, consumers are buying products, you know, the business flows when there's challenges like trade implications, um, or there's issues with materials, uh, raw material supply, like cotton prices, you know, volumes can get severely impacted. And I think as a business, um, you know, we've always, we were always kind of floating with the tide. And I think we made a conscious decision a few years ago of how do we, how do we stop that? And how do we make sure that we're delivering value for our shareholders, no matter the market conditions? So we really started this journey of what you, what you were talking about about three years ago. And, um, and it, you know, it all starts with mentality, uh, number one. And you just have to bring that, that to the, the, that type of thinking to the, to the team every day. Um, and, and, and that's what we started doing in our messaging and how we talk through it. It's just leading by example and never making excuses, right? Um, it's always, 
you know, you, you commit to a number and, and you try to drive to it. So I think that's the first piece. But I think the other piece of it that's important is that when you have that mentality of outperforming the market, you know, you have to be even handed with your team when things are going wrong. Um, and the market is declining or there's a customer is declining. You have to treat them fairly. Uh, you can't, you can't penalize them for not delivering, um, a, you know, a plus plus plan when their customers in a, and not in a plus plus situation. And mm. you just have to, so you have to be even handed. And I think when the team knows that you've got their back, um, and that, you know, you're going to support them deliver that plan, number one. And when things aren't tough, you're still going to stand by them. They tend to buy in a bit quicker. So you've just introduced a couple of, of topics that I think are going to be really interesting to discuss for our listeners. Um, one of them is knowing that they got, that you got their back. Uh, but yet on the other side, making sure that, uh, they know that they got to be in growth mode. That's got to be an interesting balancing act. How do you know when to say, market says that you're in a good spot versus, you know, I think you could be in a different spot. That's got to be an interesting challenge, especially as you as the guy who's running the whole division and you got people scattered all around the world. How do you, how do you count, count for all that? Because that seems to me like a really, really massive challenge. Well, I think it all comes down to a lot of the fundamentals of just sales management, right? If it's, if it's coaching, if it's pipeline management, um, you have to have those fundamentals. So you have that baseline of truth in place, right? And, you know, so for me, number one is having a really strong leadership team that's aligned with the thinking and the methodology. That's number one. That's, that's out in touch with the market and knows the facts and the reality. Second piece is then, you know, I need to be out in the market as much as possible with the team driving the pipeline what are the opportunities what is that reality of what's possible because if you start with the baseline of what's possible then you can react to the market and you can make solid decisions on what's fair and what's not fair um but having that baseline and a solid pipeline is, is one of the key enablers for that and then just making sure you've got your hand on the pulse um and you deal with facts right you have to have fact-based decision making it can't be about emotion so how do you do that? Now you're, now you've opened up one of my very favorite topics. Here's what my experience has been, Michael. I'm really interested to hear how you handle this. So many times, uh, you know, people will say, yeah, I'm missing the number or yeah, this is not, you know, what we wanted, but hey man, you know me, when have I let you down? Or hey man, you hired me, you know, trust me, have faith in me. How do you balance that concept of, Hey, you know, I got this versus the facts say something different. And you used a statement that I love. I just wrote down, Michael, baseline of truth. I mean, that whole concept of how you balance that and where does this baseline of truth, I want to learn more about that because that's a super interesting concept. And I think our listeners might find some interesting value on how do you have the personal side and the number side and have them coexist when they might say different things. Yeah, well, I, I think it really starts with trust and experience, right? So, you know, if you, if you have your team that trusts you and you trust them, um, and you have that experience of what they've delivered, and I won't say the name, but I've got one sales leader that, you know, I've known for many, many years, and I've seen that person deliver time and time again. And, you know, they've said, it, and back this is years ago before we did more of the fundamental things you're doing now, he would always say, Hey, trust is gonna happen and it and it delivered. So a lot of it is just accountable and seeing accountability over time. 
Um, so you, that, that does take some to develop that, that trusting piece of it. But then the second piece is you do have to have the metrics, right? You have to have a process and a system that gives you metrics to look at and view and check and validate over time. So it's kind of those two things of building up experience, being accountable and building trust, and then having metrics and things to be able to make sure you're looking in the rearview mirror and making sure that what did you did think happened actually happened. <laughs> so I want to I want to balance that then because you said that's what you're doing and it's working and I've seen your leaders they oh they like it the results would say you guys are doing good things you said that you kind of started this beat the market three years ago what did you move away from and and move towards so you could make that happen. Yeah. So if you, if you go back three years ago, we had two main issues. One I mentioned was just kind of the, the lumpiness of the business is you just, the boat would float with the tide and it's just unacceptable when you're trying to drive a, uh, a New York stock exchange company. You have to have predictability. Um, you have to have certainty in what you're delivering. You have to know the facts. So that was one issue. The second issue is the apparel retail business has been kind of in a deflationary mode for 30 years until last year, apparel prices had been deflating for almost 30 years. Wow. So pricing compression in our space has been pretty extreme in the last few years. Um, and a lot of pressure and everyone's read the press releases for how, you know, things are getting better now, but the, the U S retail business, the UK retail business, the German retail business, all under mass compression uh, and struggling. So we had to figure out how we change the dynamic here. And so two elements, one is how do we re-engineer the front end? to variableize costs, number one, and to have the lowest cost to serve our customers in the in, in the, the retail market. So that was one piece that we wanted to solve for. And the second piece was how do we bring this mentality of winning no matter what the market is doing. Um, so those are the two fundamental things we started to change. And one it is we didn't come to the table and say, is it a plan? Let's go get it done. We brought those key leaders into the room and said, Here's the business challenge. Here's the I want. How do we get there? And the team actually has built it and we align to it. But I think that accounting process, that accountability to what we were going to drive from the strategy perspective is one of the fundamental reasons why it's working and why it's worked. Because it wasn't a top-down go execute. It was a top-down, hey, here's the problem, build the solution. And I think that's really been one of the biggest differentiators over the last three years for us. So I'm glad that you said that because when you make a change like that, there probably was, you know, people that said instantly, I love it. And there's probably other people that said, why are we doing this? And then there's probably a third group that's in the middle and said, let's see how it goes. What are some of the things as you went through that change? You know, this was a great one. What are some things you had to overcome to make it so your leaders are like, yeah, this, or did they just jump on board? What was that change like? Cause change is always the hardest part of leadership, isn't it, Michael? I mean, how do you, how do you get your team to say, yep, we're in? How did, how did you do that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, I, I and it wasn't easy because I think the first probably eight weeks of the project, once we had that initial kind of meeting with the big, the big hairy goal of what we had to get done there was a lot of doubt that we could actually do it. But there was kind of a little meet, uh, moment in one of the meetings um, when when a couple of the teams came with this, this concept of how we're driving the business, very basic, saying, there's a way to do this, and here's how we're thinking through it, and here's the key elements. And it was one of those moments where everyone in the room said, okay, this is possible. We can get it done. 
And I think it was that moment where a very simple idea concept was brought out and then the team rallied around proving out how we would actually execute it. Awesome. I think, um, I think that was the reason why people had the faith and said, we can do this. And then, you know, we just, we, we built it out. And I think the other thing is, you know, we didn't just jump off the edge of the cliff. We piloted, um, we worked through it number, uh, very, and, and made sure we were going to be able to replicate it. And the other piece is we invested significant money into the change. Um, and people could visibly see that the company just wasn't saying, go do something different. We were investing to create a new dynamic. So that intentional investment was important part of the change process. So it wasn't just, we're going to give this a shot. You, you, you took that approach and your leaders obviously had to become the champions inside their regions or their areas that they were with. And, and that approach of when in doubt, send out a scout kind of, Hey, let's prove this and then we'll scale this. Is that kind of how you did it? Is that my, am I reading that right? Yeah. Built the, built the fundamentals and pilot, uh, prove and, and then, and then invest in scale. That was absolutely the way we went after it. As you look um, through that, because I think there's a lot of people that are going to say, we, we want to have that similar type of transformation because you're not solving a problem when you do that, Michael, you're, you're transforming a company. Fair to say. Yeah. Absolutely. And the other thing is, and when I say invest, it wasn't, it, you've got to, just like in any business, if it's you're investing in machine capacity or whatever you're doing, you have to have return on investment, investment, right? And, um, we treated it, treated this process like that. We said, we're going to go ask the company for a few million dollars on this. What's the, what's the company going to get, going to get back besides just top line growth? And, and so I think that also was a, a key freight for getting the, the, the leadership of the business to agree to finance this thing. That was another key approach that we took to treat this project as a, as a, you know, as we would any other financial investment for the company. So other than top line growth, were there any like kind of core metrics? You don't have to share the values, but any, any kind of core metrics that were important other than top line growth? Cause now that you mentioned that, that's, that actually is really interesting here. What were some of those if they existed? Yeah, so I think there was, you know, one of course was consistent top line growth, two, three points above the market. Uh, that was clearly one things we signed up for. But the second thing we did sign up for was a significant reduction in SGNA, um, to run the business. Um, and then the other piece we've signed up for is a significant step change in efficiency and speed and how we operated the business. So, you know, our business is a bit unique in that we have, we're selling, but we're also driving product development at that customer level because it's all, it's all custom product. So the third element of this was also how do we drive a much faster product development deployment ecosystem uh, within the frame. So those are the three big metrics. It was top line. It was SG&A savings, the lower cost to serve for our business so we could drive lower prices and still make the same level of profitability. And then the third was how do we drive a new way to develop and deploy products out into the ecosystem in a much more efficient way. All right, so let's shift gears. Those are all fantastic. Now, it's one thing when you circle your leaders together and you say, we're going to prove this, we've got to prove it. How do you roll that and scale that at a global level? How do you have all of those reps in the Avery Denison world, uh, how, how do you have them adopt that? Because that's the biggest question that I get from sales leaders all the time is, Man, how do we find ways to have impact with our reps? Any lessons learned as you try to create this transformation down? Because you probably had some new reps, some meeting reps, and probably some old dogs that might not have wanted to learn a new trick, I'm going to guess. 
Well, and I, the unique thing about this, Rob, is we actually had quite a few layoffs because when we rethought the whole process, we completely re-engineered the way we engage customers. Yep. And we had a significant sales staff reduction in this. So not only are we asking the whole company to change, a lot of the peers and coworkers were leaving the business right next to them, which, you know, causes wow. extra extra trauma. Um, yeah, that's a wow. <laughs> yeah. So, but I think, and interestingly, you know, we do employee surveys every year um, at Avery. And we had, unfortunately, I think now in hindsight, it was unfortunately when at the time in my mind, we did our employee survey three weeks after we announced all the layoffs. So, of <laughs> course, you know, my teams, uh, you know, all our functions within the whole apparel business, you know, my team's uh, customer survey was really a challenging result, but it spoke to what we were asking the team to go through. And I think the good news is I've got a great leadership team. And, and you know, when it comes down to uh, driving this type of change, you need everyone to be consistent with method messaging on the same page, number one. Number two is you have to have a very strong communication plan um, and you have to be getting feedback from the team constantly. And then three, you have to be reacting and, and providing transparency to that feedback on what you're doing about it. And you know, some of it you can address and some you can't because it's just, you know, a complaint is a complaint and it's, it is what it is. But when you're doing those things, um, you know, people, again, it starts to trust people. When people, they trust you when you're transparent with them, they're more adapt to change. And I think that's a key enabler for this. And I think the piece is, and my wife was not happy with me in 2017. You have to be in front of people accountable, taking the shots, um, and explain to them why you're doing what you're doing and what's in it for them if they'll stick with you. Um, and I think that was a key message I put in. I think I was maybe American Airlines favorite person in 2017 because I was, you know, in <laughs> Tokyo one week and in, in Amsterdam next and then in New York the following. And it was, it was, it was a, a tough road, but it, was, it had to be done to build out that trust with the team. So I wrote down another statement you just gave, Michael. It says people are more likely to trust you. Not, uh, it says they'll trust you when you're transparent with them and then they're more likely to change. What makes it hard to be transparent as a sales leader? Is there anything that you have to be pretty intentional about? I mean, that word transparency and what it does for a sales team, that's pretty unique because there's a lot of times that there's questions and I, I've seen your team and they for sure have that trust for you. And, and I've seen you be transparent. Any top of mind thoughts on why, not, not why a sales leader should be transparent, but what should you be transparent in? What, what are the things that make for transparency that creates that trust that leads to change? Well, I think I think it starts with the strategy, right? Where are you taking the business, and what's the ultimate goal of the business? You, everyone has to be aligned to that and believe in that high arch, you know, thread in the business. And I think that has to be number one. And then you have to be transparent about how what are the key things that are going to happen, good or bad, to deliver that strategy. And if people aren't on board. Um, you know, it's that whole either on the bus, you're not on the bus. We're going to tell you what we're doing, how we're going to do it and what the end is going to be, what the end game is going to be. And if you, if you can't buy up, sign up for that, then you shouldn't stay on the bus. And I think that that's, you know, that's the frame of transparency that I think you have to have. Of course, there's going to be always be things that you, you can or can't share just based on timing or legal requirements working for a, a public company or legal requirements for specific country. And you have to honor those things as fundamentals, obviously. 
But from a strategy and, and how you're going to get there, you have to be transparent about it. And even if it's good or bad. And again, like I said, you have to give people the choice um, to accept it and help be part of the, the, the solution or not. And that's okay. What has it done to your team to feel like they're part of a team that says, yeah, we're, we're market ass kickers, basically. We, we don't just do what the market says. We, we take more than we want. We're like the Avery Dennison version of the Vikings. We, we sail and take what we want and keep moving. Um, what's that done for your team to have that kind of identity? Well, this is why I love the team is that we are not an arrogant group and, you know, we're a hungry group and it's, I'm a big Philadelphia Eagles fan. And I love what Pearson was telling the team before the season started, even not playing very well, was that, hey, be humble, you know, let's go win another Super Bowl. We don't, we're not entitled to anything. And I think, you know, this, we're annual planning now for 2019. We're kind of at the tail end of the process. And I'm coming out of this planning session thinking, man, we're in a really tough spot because we're being on ourselves. It's, there's no celebrating and you have to celebrate, obviously, don't get me wrong, but, the team is not saying, hey, we've been coasting. Um, we don't need to put up another seven points of growth. The team is absolutely saying, how do we get to 8%? Yeah, and that's think, what I'm saying, man. How awesome is that? And you're not pushing them. That's what they're at. They're doing that themselves. No, me, me and my finance partner, uh, I think when we got the first build for 2019, we're like, oh, crap, how are we going to tamp this down a couple of points? Because we can't take this. To the we're going to be hammered. <laughs> <laughs> So, so that's what it's done. You've, you've created this culture now where these people are like, yeah, we identify as we're the ones that do more than anyone else. And, and has that done good things for other things? You know, like you, you talked about your surveys earlier and probably your retention. Have you seen kind of a, a shift as they've identified with this? We take what the market takes and then some. What has it done to their review of those things and maybe even metrics? You talked about metrics. Does that make him embrace the metrics or has anything like that? I, I'm rambling and I apologize, but I'm, yeah, I'm super interested okay. to what you see. What's happened with your reps as you've seen this shift take hold? Because the shift has happened. Now, what do you see on yep. the after side versus the before? Well, I think two, there's two things, right? Because the metrics are important. And as every salesperson, you know, the one metric that matters is what's the, the paycheck look like, right? What's the commission check look like? So I think that mentality of growth and then giving the team the, you know, the, the process and the tools to deliver the growth have results for most of the team. And so that one metric is, is, is obviously builds up confidence because most of the team is making good returns on the effort they're putting in. Um, so I think that that's one piece of it. But I think the other piece of it is, and this is one philosophy we've been really pushing is don't just look at your commission check. Are we building a sustainable business that's going to grow and make money for the corporation so the stock price moves and we return shareholder value? You know, that's one other fundamental metric that we've been doing. And I think with my team, we've been training them on, you know, for a salesperson down the line, learning about EBIT and EVA and operating uh, cash flow and working, you know, working capital. These are all things we're trying to drive into the, the organization so it's not a, you know, my taking care of myself mentality. Because, you know, we always harsh, we don't want to go, we don't want to lay people off. Three years ago, we had to lay people off. And we never want that to happen again. If we're continual growth mode, if we're an investment grade company, we don't have to lay off people. So I think those metrics of our, just our corporation's financial statement is the most important thing we drive every day. If we're making EBIT, if we're driving the stock price, then we can kind of create our own future. And I think the team has embraced that med type thinking. 
Well, seven consecutive quarters of outperforming the market would say the shift has been impressive. And uh, to go from, hey, we got to figure something different out to, yeah, man, we're seven going on eight quarters. I tip my cap to you because I know that's hard to do in any organization, but to do it with an organization the size of Avery Denison in a global way, job well done. What was the hardest part of that shift? As you look back on it, what was the biggest challenge you had to overcome? I want to, I'm going to answer that, but I want to just say one thing before that is I do want to also acknowledge that, you know, as, as a commercial team, you always think, you know, you're driving, you're leading from the front and you are. But I think one of the great things about our business is we had a platform, um, from our operations group of service excellence, um, allow us that, that service excellence of serving our customers and making great product as fast as possible around the world and, 40 different manufacturing locations that gives us the confidence to be able to go out and say, we want to outperform the market. Number one. So I do want to acknowledge this piece. Um, and, and I'm sure my operations brethren are not going to listen to this podcast, but it has to be said that without great service um, and great manufacturing quality or great technology innovation, whatever it is that enables you to sell, um, you've got to have that as a bedrock and it starts with that. So I didn't want all that out. Well, I think um, that's a, that's a really good point to make because for two reasons, A, it goes to the great qual- importance of team, but you're right. I mean, it's way, it's way more important. I mean, you're not going to have ongoing success if your either product isn't good or your service quality isn't good. So you obviously have to be part of a stellar team. So I'm, I think it's the fact that you wouldn't go on without bringing that up speaks to your leadership on what you're doing to build a great team. So I'm actually glad you did push pause to do that. Yeah. And and in that meantime, I forgot the question. My question was in the shift, because we're actually running out of time, if you can believe that. It's gone fast. Um, what was the biggest challenge? As you look back on this shift, and the yeah. shift is amazing, I think the story is one that our, our listeners are going to find really, really interesting to, you know, to – one version of oh shit to a different version of oh shit. It's like oh shit, you know what it is. Yeah. Holy shit, look what we've done. <laughs> and that's actually a pretty cool story that you've been the architect of. As you look at that, what was the biggest challenge from a leadership perspective that you had to face, and how'd you get through it? I think it was just that that concept of belief and and making sure that you know you can have a global organization that's culturally diverse, and you know you have to treat the market a bit differently. Um, that you could get everyone pulling the boat in the same direction and that belief that the, the end game was, was going to be achievable. I think that was probably the single toughest thing we, we had to overcome. And I think it gets back to something I said earlier, how we overcome it was, you know, in not being my project or not being, you know, it was, is having a, the company's, um, backing to invest and to help us build the change. And then the leadership team that works around me and with me. Um, helping build it out and building out the solution together and not being a top down, uh, just not being a top down driven initiative. So I think those are the two key enablers that made this happen was the company behind us, supporting us, investing and, and giving service to the business. And then the team actually building it from the ground up and, and creating that groundswell, that fabric, um, that fabric of acceptability. I call it that kind of accountability across the teams. I think is is what made the biggest difference. Love that story. This has been awesome. I'm telling you, we're going to get a lot of great feedback from our listeners. The story that you've just shared and how you kind of help navigate 
from one, you know, shore to the next shore. And, and now you're finding what's next. I, I, I can't wait to watch and see, you know, just how far you guys take things as you say, we'll take what the market gives and then some. I, I really love your three magic words and then some. Um, one of the things that I finish every episode, I'm going to finish the same with you as I finish with every single guest, Michael. And again, thank you for joining us. This has been outstanding. Awesome. Love it. We found that with guys like you, leaders like you, people like you that are leading teams that are in high growth mode, the great leaders uh, never stop trying to learn and improve. The great leaders are always saying, you know, how do I continue to improve? And as a result, one of the common things we see is that leaders are readers. Do you have any kind of books that have helped you in your journey as becoming a world-class uh, high growth sales leader that you would recommend to our, our listeners? Uh, and, and, you know, I agree with you on the reading piece and me personally, um, I tend to do a lot more reading, um, within the, in the space. Um, uh, and I, and I always read the, the process books that Kim Schneider, who you know, always tells me, you got to read this book. So she's my, uh, librarian for good reads. Um, <laughs> but I'm a big, you know, big reader of the industry information, the economist. I like to get a lot of small bits of information. Yeah. Um, that's one stack, but I, there's a, there's one book and the title is semi inappropriate. Um, but it's called the art of not giving a blank. Um, it's a love great it. book. And why I love the book is because I know personally, um, you know, I have a strong, um, propensity to, you know, run to the fire and I'm emotional, um, generally. So this whole concept of being balanced and how you think things, think through things, the yin and the yang pause before you, is this really worth me getting emotional over? Um, for me, it's, 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 it's all about that kind of approach and how do I balance myself a little better? So I've, I love that book. Um, a, a, one of my colleagues recommended it, um, about six months ago and it's, it's been really helpful for me just to kind of be more balanced how I react to things and think through things. Cause that's generally my issue is, you know, not overreacting. Um, and, and, you know, thinking through things a little more. So that, that's a great book to read. Not a salesy book, but a oh, good philosophical book. I, I'm very familiar with that book, and I agree. It's a great one. I'm glad you suggested it. We'll, we'll uh, make sure we get that up on our library on the website of our, our uh, leadership uh, recommended reading library. And I, I think that you've picked a great one. I, I love that book as well. So, Michael, this has been awesome. We're, we're, we are out of time. It, it's been fantastic. I love how you shared – uh, the journey that you've had with your 400 plus salespeople scattered around the globe. Uh, you have absolutely uh, led a transformation story. And, you know, that's what everybody's talking about right now is not how do we solve problems, but how do we engineer transformation? And you've given our team a really tangible story with some blueprints that I think that they can take and, and, and use to help their organizations start their own journey. So I want to thank you for that. Um, and like I do with everyone, uh, I want to wish you success and good luck and, and happy selling. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Yep. I appreciate all your support as well. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another So What portion of the Sales Leadership Podcast where we break down that interview and we ask ourselves, why did that conversation even matter? And Michael Barton has built an impressive sales organization. You know, he's he's got a company that works in a global environment is really, really driven by market pressures, and yet he has a culture where they say, we're going to take what the market gives, but then we're going to take just a little more. 
And he runs a company. The reason it was so fun to have him on is he runs a company that does things that every one of us have seen. That swoosh on your Nikes, that switching on your, on your Levi's and all kinds of other, of other labels. He and his team are the ones that make those things happen. And many, many times I've heard sales leaders and salespeople really be quick to point their finger out the window if the market's challenging. And that's kind of what we signed up for. I used that language, what we signed up for. And it reminded me of something one of my very best friends once said to me. One of my very best, best friends uh, is, is a gentleman named LaVon Edwards. And LaVon played football at the University of Utah. And he was not too long ago recognized as one of the top 20 best plays of all time. And I remember I asked of, at, at the University of Utah, and I asked him, what was your favorite part of being uh, a defensive back at the University of Utah? And I thought for sure I was going to hear something about a big pick or an you know, interception for a touchdown or, or something like that. And it surprised me what he said. He said, my favorite moments were when the offense would have a turnover and we had to go protect our field deep in our side of the field. And, you know, as a team captain, I would see my teammates sometimes, you know, grumbling and saying, I can't believe the offense made that mistake and now they're putting us in a bad spot. But instead, LeVon would tell me that he would, you know, he'd start buckling up his helmet and he would start bouncing and nodding his head and he would look at his teammates and say, this is what we signed up for, this moment right here. No sudden turns of momentum, and we're going to instead go take the momentum, and that's what we signed up for is hard situations like this. And what I found is, is great leaders are the ones that are very aware that they're signing up for hard things. It's super easy to be an order taker in sales. It's super easy to work for an organization with a very simple sales process. But for most sales leaders and most salespeople, nothing sells itself. We have to go out and take it. And so having an attitude of we're going to go out and take what the market gives, yes, but then we're going to take a little more and we're going to have a mindset that says we're going to go get what we want, not what someone says we can have, is really important. And if as leaders we can't adopt that mindset of this is what I signed up for, it's going to be really, really hard for us to have a sales team built of people like Michael talked about of what they signed up for. Michael gave us like 20 key points that started with mentality and worked through balance and facts and metrics and systems and all kinds of stuff, how they would test and pilot things. There's great. It's just chock filled with a great journey of going from not an awesome scenario to one of the most awesome scenarios. And to me, his whole thing was about them signing up and selling out. And then their reps signing up and selling out. And by selling out, I mean going all in. There's a famous football coach quote that I, I think of that says, all in or in the way. And that's a great attitude, all in or in the way. We should start with ourselves as a leader. Am I all in or am I in the way as a leader? And then that makes it if we have embodied that, and he talked about that, great builders lead trust because they're in front of the team. They're rallying the team. They're staying with the team. They're helping the team. And he talked about how trust comes from being transparent, not just because you revealed the facts, but you're transparent in your commitment to the team and willingness to do whatever it takes to win. Um, it reminds me of what Matt Mellon said in his episode with me, that if someone's at the office, I'm going to be here with them. Are we an all-in leader or are we just in the way? And if we're all in, we can expect our reps to be all in with us. And so I loved that whole thing because I, one of the things that screamed at me was this concept, involvement is greater than oversight. Too many leaders are focused on what they have oversight for, how many reports they have, direct reports they have, and all those kinds of things. 
Instead, focus on how involved you can be. And what I think you'll find is that will create a different level of engagement and trust and camaraderie with your team. And you'll find that you can have what I think is the most important conversation. If they know that you know, your focus is you are committed to them, you can actually challenge them. Because I believe the most important two words in business is I am, and then you fill a blank, I am what? Help your reps fill in the blank after I am very intentionally. I am top performer. I am going on club. I am going to build this capability. I am what? I don't believe there's a lot of happy accidents in sales. I just don't believe it. I believe that great teams are led and built by great leaders. And if you can help each member of your team have I am moments where they are committing to what they are going to be, what they are going to accomplish, and what they will become because of your leadership, you can help them get there. So my challenge to you, be all in, not in the way. Remember that involvement trumps oversight. And at the end of the day, you want to use your one-on-ones to help your reps have I am moments. I am going to start more opportunities. I am going to use this resource differently. I am going to become whatever. And if you understand what their I am is, you can be all in in their development rather than in the way. Special thanks to Michael Barton. I hope you enjoyed his uh, his little conversation with us. Avery Dennison is a terrific company that you ought to follow. Um, and again, thank you for your following of this show. We continue to get great reviews, a lot of emails and, and messages being sent my way. Uh, please, please, please go do those reviews out on the podcast sites. Makes it easier for more people to find us. And as always, I will wish you happy selling. I remind you, don't worry, because we got you. Thanks for joining us for the Sales Leadership Podcast, your weekly pipeline to the most successful thought leaders and rainmakers in sales. Make sure to check out additional episodes at salesleadershippodcast.com. The Sales Leadership Podcast is produced by Brian Jepson and is sponsored by Exvoyant, the modern sales leadership platform for salesforce.com users. You can visit Exvoyant at exvoyant.com.